Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm an experienced registered yoga teacher with over 15 years of teaching experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is this, to help you develop into a purpose-driven, confident yoga teacher, one who truly understands anatomy and how to share it clearly and confidently so that you can help your students learn and as a result, grow your impact and connection. I strongly support and value the uniqueness of all individuals and provide a safe community where diversity is embraced. Through my mentorship and signature program called the Blueprint Learning Program, I help yoga teachers build their skills in the area of learning anatomy, and along with that, help them learn important business skills and personal development ways of being that will transform them into purpose-driven teachers who make a big impact. On the podcast here, you'll get a blend of both anatomy learning, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. For more information and to get on the wait list for any of my programs, see my website, barebonesyoga.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 127. So we're heading into an episode where I have yet another interview. This has been a really uh, exciting month for me uh, in terms of having the opportunity to talk to a number of different experts in their field. And today is no different. You're really in for a treat. This is actually the first time I have a physician who is on the podcast. Dr. Peter Kim is joining us. You'll hear his intro uh, when we start uh, that interview. So I don't want to kind of take away any of uh, any of the uh, introductory uh, comments and statements that he makes. Dr. Kim is a hand surgeon and he is here in Boston. You'll hear a little bit about um, how, how I know him. He is a, a good friend of my partner, Ben, and um, I kind of leveraged Ben's friendship with him to see if he would be willing to be on the podcast to talk about hand wrist anatomy. And he said, yes. So I am just so thrilled to bring this uh, conversation to you. This is such an important uh, conversation for us as yoga teachers to uh, be part of because uh, of the, you know, preponderance of poses where we have people on their hands, weight bearing on the hands. And of course, uh, the anatomy of the hand is central to understanding how that may or may not present any challenges to them. And the other thing I really, really like about this episode is that um, we really get into a conversation about overall health and wellness. And uh, as we wrap up the conversation, and I think there's a lot of things that Dr. Kim brings up that are really relevant uh, just to overall health and wellness in terms of an approach to healing from injury and approach to overall wellness and nutrition and, and supplements and things like that. So I really, um, this is a real treat. Um, before we, before I kick over to that conversation, I just want to, um, you know, just let you know in general, just to kind of give you a, a sense of the timing here. I recorded this interview with Dr. Kim on April 23rd, 2021. So depending on when you're listening, uh, you're probably listening to this on the 26th or so of April um, or some somewhere around there. So that just gives you a sense of, of timing. And then just one final thing, um, there are some um, uh, resource guides for yoga teachers on my website 
And you can just go to barebonesyoga.com and you'll see some of the things up there, a sequence building tool, as well as uh, a roadmap to understanding anatomy. That's my, my 10 key steps to understanding anatomy download you can get as well. The other thing I just wanna say before we hop over to the conversation with Dr. Kim is I wanna thank all of you who are new listeners, especially those who are finding this podcast via the Podbean platform, which hosts, hosts the podcast. I see a lot of new people that are subscribing and I really appreciate it. For any of you who are listening, whether you're listening via iTunes or Podbean or YouTube, wherever you are, I really want to thank you. And I really, really want to ask you uh, for any feedback you have after listening to this episode. So send me an email, leave me a, a comment on uh, whatever platform you're listening on, uh, subscribe to the podcast. The easiest way to get in touch with me is you can just go to Instagram, Bare Bones Yoga, and send me a, a direct message. And I would love to hear anything that comes up for you, as well as if you have an idea for a topic for future episodes. So that's my intro. I'm super stoked to bring you this conversation with Dr. Peter Kim. So let's roll that tape. So thank you so much for doing this. I love that, you know, I had this like thought the other day and, and I love that Ben connected us on text and you are open to it because this is definitely, you know, for my podcast, which is uh, conversations for yoga teachers, a conversation that is super relevant. And yeah. in terms of like guests I've had on the podcast, you're the first physician. I've had personal trainers. I've had massage therapists. I've had, you know, different people in exercise science. Um, you're uh, the first MD I've had on. So I really am psyched for that. Yeah. I have a friend of mine on who just got accepted uh, into her fellowship. So she's psyched about that, but she's in training still. So, so this is really cool. So yeah. why don't we start out? I mean, the first thing I wanted to kind of get a sense from you is just for the listeners, just in general, uh, who you see, how you help them, where you are kind of generally working. Most of the listeners that listen to my podcast, I know I'm in Boston. So just kind of frame it for them in terms of like what you do. Yeah. So uh, my name is Peter Kim. I, I work as a hand and wrist surgeon based here in Boston. Uh, I operate primarily at New England Baptist Hospital, but I have a faculty appointment through Harvard Med School, and I, I'm on the teaching faculty at Beth Israel Deaconess and part of the, the hand fellowship program there. <clears throat> My clinical interest is basically uh, any, any injuries from fingertip to the elbow. Um, so we take care of a lot of sports injuries, a lot of trauma. Um, <clears throat> and then there are also some common um, the, uh, inju injuries or problems that people have, such as nerve entrapment, most common being carpal tunnel syndrome. So that's a super common thing that we see. And then various problems with joints, uh, bones and joints, like arthritis um, and other tendon issues. So the fun thing about my job is that I'm kind of the, um, the hand surgeons in general are, are the, where the buck stops uh, with regards to pretty much anything from the fingertip to the elbow. Right. And despite our job title, most of, or, you know, a good chunk of what we do is not even surgical. We just sort of meet people and diagnose an injury and kind of come up with a treatment plan. And then obviously if surgery is involved, then that, that's also something that we can offer. Yeah. Now, do you have, like, what's the age range of people you see? I see, well, I basically see the whole range. Uh, I'll see kids who have sports injuries, but I don't operate on kids. Because um, where, where I operate, they don't allow uh, patients um, younger than 16. So essentially, my surgical patients are from 16 all the way to forever. 
Um, and then, you know, I, I feel like who I see is kind of bimodal. It's like young kids getting hurt, um, usually broken bones. And then, and then people later on in life, you know, into the 40s, 50s, 60s and, and beyond who end up having whatever problem that's getting in, in, in the way of work or, or their hobbies or other activities. Got it. All right. So I want to just have you go back in time. Uh, you know, a lot of people have an origin story around medicine that's connected to someone in their family, a mother, father in medicine, or, you know, a relative or something else. Um, what is your origin story around why you got into medicine? That's a great question. Um, unlike most uh, Asian kids, my parents actually tried to discourage me from being a doctor. My dad, he's an engineer, an electrical engineer. He has a PhD. Cannot stand the sight of blood. So when I told him at a very young age that I wanted to be a surgeon, he, he didn't understand why and he had no empathy and no tools to help me. So this is very much kind of a, some, a fire in my belly that I can remember having since forever. Maybe maybe like early on elementary school, I always knew I wanted to be a surgeon. I, I don't know what it was. I think there's just some, you know, you have some fantasy idea of what it, what it is. And it just worked out that as, as I went through schooling, what I envisioned it being was close to what I thought it was going to be. And, and all the, all the chips kind of fell in my favor as far as like school and all that. So um, I grew up in Southern California, super active family. We're always out hiking, running, skiing, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so sports has always been in, big in my life. Um, <clears throat> I, I was born in the States, but my um, I'm ethnically Korean. When, when I was in eighth grade, our family actually moved to Korea. So for my parents, it was moving back. For me, it was moving to. So it's kind of a reverse immigration for me. Um, I went to an international school there uh, for from eighth through 12th grade. Um, some of my best friends in, in life are still from that phase of, of my sort of formative years because it was kind of a traumatic experience for all of us, sure. being uprooted from all over the world and kind of converging on this international they- school. Uh, my, so my dad, as I mentioned, he's, he's an electrical engineer. And while we're in California, he worked for Honeywell. Or excuse me, he worked for Hughes Aircraft. And in the early 90s, Samsung was trying to make a run at Sony. So they wanted to bring back a bunch of expats to, to make a charge at Sony. So he was part of that wave. Probably like mo- dozens of people went back um, in their like early 90s. Um, so they've, they've decided to stay there since. Uh, but I graduated, yeah, I graduated high school in 95, came out east for med school, a college in med school. And uh, even then, like even in, in high school, I remember thinking like, I got to figure out a way to get into an operating room. So I would like volunteer, or kind of sneak my way in. And, and once I beheld what, what the operating room was, you know, face to face, I was like, this is definitely, this yeah. is for me. Like there, yeah. there's, there's something special about it that, that resonated with me. Yeah. So how did you end up specializing in hand wrist? How did that come as a next phase of focus? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So all along, I thought I was going to be a cardiac surgeon, just, just ah. same, you know, same fantasy, right? But for me, I realized that I, it wasn't a, a good cultural fit. Yeah. Brandon, we can see you, buddy. Oh. Oh. <laughs> hi. This is Miss Karen. Say hi. Hi. How are you? I'm in the middle of a video interview. I'm talking. I'm talking to you, Dad. I'm talking to your dad about his life. All right, I'll, I'll talk to you about it in a second. But why don't you grab that and get out of here? Sorry, I'll have to edit that. Sorry, buddy. Okay, I'll come find you. 
Yeah, so I, I always, all throughout high school, you know, as I mentioned, I, I was like keen on being a doctor and a surgeon. I thought I was going to go into cardiac surgery. Fast forward, you know, when I was in college and med school, I realized it kind of wasn't a good cultural fit for me. Yeah. So I, my background is actually a little bit different. I came to hand surgery through plastic surgery. Most hand surgeons are orthopedic trained, but I did um, seven years of general surgery and plastic surgery training. Um, and hand surgery is part of plastic surgery in addition to everything else you, you think about. Yeah. Um, but once I completed that training, I knew I wanted to double down into hand surgery. So I did an orthopedic hand fellowship um, for my eighth year of training after med school in Seattle. Got it. So got it. finished there in 2011 and then came out to Boston when I got a job and we slept a family out here. Got it. So kind of random, but not exactly question. When you said hand surgery or when you said plastic surgery, for some reason, the Jimmy Fallon avulsion injury popped into my head. Did you hear me? Yeah. Like, yeah. David, David Chu took care of him. Yeah. yeah. So David Chu is a, a hand trained plastic surgeon based in New York. So that's considered plastic surgery, that kind of versus orthopedic. Yeah. Well, when you get to hand surgery, we're all trained to do all the above. Got it. So there's certain like, you know, biases, I guess, or things that you're more comfortable with. But um, what drew me to plastic surgery before hand surgery was the ability to work in delicate things and particularly like hooking up little blood vessels and nerves. Because um, that's still something that kind of dragged with me from my, my desire to be a cardiac surgeon is like hooking up little, you know, important structures. And, and so that is very much part of what we do in plastic surgery. But then we just take those skills and, and apply them to the hand. And yeah. same thing, if you're, if you're orthopedic trained, you still learn those along the way. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember when that injury to Jimmy Fallon happened, and I just want to kind of just ask you this other question, just because it brings up, brings up a broader issue that I think people aren't always aware of. He talked about how incredibly like life-threatening that was. And you wouldn't actually think, at least I didn't at the time, that potentially amputating your finger could be life-threatening. But when you just mentioned nerve injury, nerve damage, I mean, does that actually classify as a traumatic injury when you have like an avulsion type injury to your hand? Oh yeah, big time. You know, when you, when you lose part of a finger, by definition, you have to cut through bone, skin obviously, then bone, tendons, um, multiple nerves and, and blood vessels. Um, and if you're unable to put it back on, then yeah, they, there can be some life altering pain or some other functional deficits, uh, despite whatever efforts there may be to, to, you know, fix it. Right. So it, it's a tough injury. I mean, you, you even see him on TV now and you can see he's not, he doesn't move yeah. normally. That, that's a very, very tough injury to recover from even yeah. in the best of hands. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it certainly speaks to the systemic nature of a hand injury, even though you yeah. might think it as a localized thing. And I think that as yoga teachers, we're always looking at things systemically because we're yeah. know, really teaching gross motor movement. However, by the same token, we're also dealing with concerns that people bring that might be fine motor issues, you know, right. especially with respect to hand wrists. So that's, that's interesting. Okay. So we kind of went through that, which is amazing. And as I said, I didn't actually know that about you in the times we've chatted before. So, um, can you speak a little bit about, you talked about it a little bit at the beginning when you referenced carpal tunnel and kids. So I guess like to a certain extent, um, you've covered this idea of like what kinds of things you're generally seeing. So are you kind of straddling between office hours and OR type stuff? 
Yeah, most surgeons and hand surgeons included uh, usually have like a pretty regimented weekly schedule where you spend a couple of days in the office and a couple of days in the operating room. And <clears throat> the office days are, are usually seeing new patients who come in with either some, some acute injury that was bandages up in the ER and then they follow up with a hand specialist or just ongoing, you know, issues that people may have, <clears throat> um, surgical or not. Got it. And then the, the days in surgery are just, you know, days where we just operate on patients who end up needing things fixed, generally speaking. Got it. Got it. So, um, you know, for my listeners out there, they have a broad range of anatomy knowledge. And I think, especially in regards to how I, how I particularly train teachers, there are some, and I don't actually want to necessarily use the term rabbit hole, but there are some areas of anatomy that I don't go into initially. Uh, um, and, and foot and hand are two that I don't because initially the first phase for them is really around like shoulder mobility, hip mobility, spine issues, uh, understanding muscles, contractions, like kind of big ticket items, not to say hand wrist is not big ticket. Um, so can you just kind of <laughs> take us back to just basics of hand anatomy, maybe even from the perspective of if you were speaking to a patient and someone, you know, had, you know, a collie's fracture or some kind of injury where you mm -hmm. had to kind of walk them through, okay, here's what we're dealing with. Cause most listeners obviously know hip and shoulder are ball and socket and they know knee is, you know, potentially they'll know knee is hinge pivot, you know, but can you just give a little blurb <clears throat> somebody out there? Who's kind of like, uh, radius ulna. Okay. But what are we really talking about beyond that? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's. I, I love my job in large part due to the fact that I love the anatomy of the hands and wrists. Yeah. It's it's a it, to me it's a beautiful machine. The way I think about it, <clears throat> the hand, um, it's a marionette. So there's a bunch of tendons in the forearm that control flexion and extension. There's some stuff going on in the hands too for fine motor, but grossly speaking, it's just a bunch of pulleys and cables that that actuate finger movement. Um, and then obviously we have blood vessels that keep the hand alive, and a bunch of nerves so we can feel things and move things. Um, so that's mainly the hand. The wrist um, has eight bones in it called the carpal bones, and they, they live more or less kind of in this ballpark. And that th this sort of interplay of these eight wrist bones and very important ligaments gives you all these ridiculous degrees of freedom, right? You have flexion and extension. You have what we call ulnar uh, and radial deviation. Um, you know, these, and then there's something called the dart throwers movement, where it's kind of a combination of both, which is this sort of elegant way that the wrist moves very naturally. And that has a lot to do with the, the bony anatomy and the joint anatomy um, amongst those eight bones. And then we have two forearm bones. And the reason why we have two forearm bones, which are the radius and the ulna, are that the radius, as the name implies, is able to pivot around the ulna. And that's what gives us that twisting palm up, palm down motion. Mm -hmm. So all these degrees of freedom are afforded by multiple sets of joints and bones and, you know, we, we don't even think consciously about how to put our hand in space. It just goes where we tell it. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of coordination of dozens of muscles and uh, other structures that, that would make what is intuitively a very simple move actually happen, which is why, you know, there are a lot of robotic joints that are pretty good at, at um, sort of uh, creating like a facsimile of a normal hu human anatomy. But the hand and wrist and fingers are, are, are sort of like multiple degrees of complexity um, beyond that. So it, it's hard to get a really good prosthetic for that matter. Yes, yes. Well, prosthetic, yes, for sure. And I have a lot of things I could 
ask you about that. I guess the one thing I'm thinking of, especially when you're talking about um, nerve um, impact, um, that's just a little bit of a sidebar question, although somewhat relevant, uh, especially in my work with children, I'm always fascinated to see their fine motor movement skills when I do art projects with them. And then I also mm. think about as people age, fine motor movement being an issue as well, when you think about some adaptive devices that seniors need to use. Um, but we don't always think about hand wrist, at least I don't, in terms of like some of the muscular degradation <clears throat> or joint degradation mm. that we might more commonly kind of see headlines about in terms of hips and shoulders. So just generally speaking, is there anything like I'm thinking in terms of kids, what is it about kids that make fine, that makes fine motor movement so challenging for them? Is it something nervous system wise? That's like they, the nervous system isn't exactly pinpointing what they need to do. And that develops over time as a skill. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, I'm not a developmental neurologist, but you know, in dealing with kids, they're just they're developing on all fronts right there yeah. all these connections these synapses are being made and they're creating muscle memory so to speak so nobody's born learning how to bang on a keyboard or play guitar or you know draw a picasso so these are things that they're learning and their sort of hand-eye coordination isn't sharp their ability to translate you know what they're thinking to what they're doing isn't sharp so th there's just a lot of developmental stuff that i, I don't fully understand um, yeah. just based on my lack of knowledge. But um, having said that, what I do know about kids in having dealt with kids who have had injuries or kids who have congenital differences where things are missing or, or not fully formed, they're able to adapt in remarkable ways. You know, if you take a, a, a kid who was never born with a thumb versus you take a 30 year old who had a thumb and you, and you take it away from an injury, two totally different outcomes really because you know these kids they just they just know how to adapt intuitively um they don't have to unlearn something and relearn it right right, right. and and um yeah it, it's amazing how kids are able to take something that we don't see as like fully functional and just turn it into like not a problem at all yeah it's amazing it's, it's awesome I think of that when I see like Shriners commercials and you see the kids in wheelchairs or amputees or, you know, and they're just kind of motoring around and, and it is, it is remarkable. Um, so you mentioned earlier carpal tunnel and I always think of carpal tunnel, maybe not correctly. So as a kind of an overuse chronic type injury um, mm -hmm. and definitely <clears throat> teaching, although we don't necessarily have to go into yoga per se, but I guess I'm wondering, like, if you were to separate out the kinds of things you see, yes, I'm sure there's trauma, like I fell and put my wrist out or fell on the ice or whatever it is, or sports. Um, I'm curious about chronic type things or overuse type things, because that, yeah. when we get to talking about the yoga stuff, that's oftentimes where people are headed, because if they're practicing a lot, they end up in that bucket of overuse. So other than carpal tunnel, or maybe talk a little bit about carpal tunnel in terms of what's going on there and why that's in the overuse bucket. Yeah, I actually, I'm glad you brought that up. I spent a good part of my week trying to inform people that carpal tunnel syndrome is not overuse. That was for sure kind of um, common knowledge, even two, three decades ago. Um, and, and it has largely been disproven. Now, just to backtrack, what carpal tunnel syndrome is essentially it's a nerve compression problem. It's the most common nerve compression problem in, in the upper extremity for sure, probably in any extremity. And there's an important nerve called the median nerve that travels, you know, essentially from the spinal cord. Um, the trunk of the nerve goes down the forearm and it enters a space 
um, at the base of the hand. That's the, the cross-sectional area is about, uh, about that of a quarter. And in that space, you have uh, the nine tendons that move the finger joints, nine finger joints, uh, this big squishy nerve. And uh, the, the back of that tunnel is, is formed by the wrist bones, it's called the carpal bones. Mm-hmm. And then there's a tight little ligament on the roof, which lives at the heel of the hand that essentially creates a fixed space. Mm-hmm. So what happens is um, basically in the vast majority of people, we don't know why it happens. Um, so it's it's certainly not caused by repetitive use, but in certain people, the pressure in that tunnel builds, and then there's nowhere for that pressure to go. Like you know, when you cross your legs too long, and your foot falls asleep, you uncross your leg, and then the pressure dissipates, and then your foot wakes up again. But when the nerves in this fixed space where there is no way to dissipate the pressure, then the 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 nerve gets irritable, sending signals to the brain, i.e., pins and needles which can then progress to frank numbness in, in um, basically the three, three and a half fingers. And then in worst case scenarios, you can actually lose the signal to the muscle and get muscle atrophy at the base of the thumb. Okay. Um, now, again, we don't know why it is why it starts in people, but there are certain activities definitely that can aggravate it. So somebody who has carpal tunnel syndrome, you know, 90% of the time they're fine, but then when they, fire up the lawnmower or if they get on a motorcycle or sometimes if they do certain yoga poses or if they do you know painting or driving this the somehow the position or the activity causes pressure on the nerve and then they get the symptoms again um the other common complaint with carpal tunnel syndrome is that you wake up at night because what happens is you know during the day we're sitting upright most people are not as good postured as you are but most people are upright during the day and, and therefore, we're basically a column of fluid, right? And then the fluid comes down into the legs, which is why at the end of the day, you get the sock lines, right? Then you lay down, and then all that fluid redistributes to the upper body, which is why we get puffy eyes in the morning, um, especially if you eat like salty food, you get even more water retention. And that fluid can enter into the hands, and then that extra fluid causes just a little bit more pressure added to the nerve. So very classically, somebody will come in and say, yeah, you know, it's weird. Every like three in the morning, I'll wake up and like my hands are tingly. I got to shake it out and then I'll, I'll go back to sleep. Um, and so that's like the classic vignette I'll hear when somebody comes in with, for the first time for carpal tunnel syndrome. So, so to summarize, it, it is not a repetitive use problem. It's a problem of too much pressure on the nerve. We don't know why, why it's caused but there are definitely certain activities that can aggravate it. Yeah. Well, that's a huge myth buster because from way back, I took anatomy at BU way long, long time ago. That was what we always heard of it as. Um, And the way you describe it, it kind of reminds me of like compartment syndrome with respect to the shit. And uh, of course I think of Tiger Woods because that injury he had, that was, it seemingly was their big concern in terms of the compartment of the shin right so i kind of i also think of sciatica because we see that a lot in yoga as well with respect to the piriformis and the sciatic nerve and yeah even though it's not a tunnel that's a similar compression from an aggravated muscle if it's piriformis related and not lumbar spine related so right right totally makes sense interesting okay cool well i'm glad we glad we clarified that um all right so um another kind of now we're kind of drilling down a little bit. So when it comes to a typical yoga practice where there is a lot of weight bearing on the wrists, are there certain conditions, maybe carpal tunnel, um, that would kind of 
that we should kind of say you shouldn't be weight bearing on the wrists. I mean, because there is in a typical practice quite a lot of things where you are fighting gravity, mm -hmm. you're upside down and you're weight bearing on the hands. I, I would say there's no sweeping statement about what you should or shouldn't do. Yeah. Um, however, one of the most common uh, issues that people have is something called ulnar sided wrist pain. So that's pain kind of, if you follow the pinky down, there's a little, the little knobby bone there. That's at the intersection of where the wrist, you know, the, those eight bones do the flexion and extension and then the two forearm bones do the twisting movement. And um, in our business, we jokingly call pain on the ulnar side of the wrist, the low back pain of the wrist, because everybody gets it at some point. You may have had, it, I've definitely had it. Um, and you can get it from like loaded extension. Uh, and usually there's some impact involved, right? Like I fell or something and then it's, it's like sore over here. Um, but, you know, if you're spending a lot of time bearing your body weight on, on an extended wrist, you can, you can no question strain that part of the wrist. Um, it's, it's hard to tear structures there. Uh, you need some kind of a high impact injury to actually tear a ligament like an ACL. Um, but certainly just prolonged strain on that ligament can for sure cause some symptoms in that side of the wrist. Yeah. Um, that's one of the most common things that people come in and people who are like pretty uh, avid yoga, yoga practitioners. Um, the most common complaint I'll, I'll have is people come in with ulnar sided wrist pain. Mm -hmm. um, it's usually not an injury caused by yoga, but it's usually something that they did. And then it's, it's holding them back from practicing the poses that they enjoy doing. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And it's interesting because again, when, you know, kind of the, I don't want to say typical path of learning anatomy for yoga teachers, especially for someone who has no prior anatomical background, um, which is very common in the yoga industry that people go into teaching and they don't have any mm -hmm. background in medicine or anatomy or, you know, kind of understanding of the body. And that's really their first introduction. And the anatomy of the wrist is definitely not something that's generally covered. However, in teaching, not only are there a lot of poses where you're weight bearing on the hand, um, but there are a lot of poses where you're in full wrist extension, as you said. Yeah. And when we think of range of motion, again, commonly what's discussed is shoulder range of motion and knee range of motion <clears> and <throat> range of motion. And it makes me wonder, you know, a certain posture, like a, like a back bend where you're in full yeah. extension and weight bearing. And in my own experience, teaching people, sometimes I'll see a lot of other things in the elbows and the shoulders where they're out of alignment. And I was thinking last night as I was preparing to ask you some questions, if someone were to have limited mobility in the wrist in full extension in a posture, would you potentially see other changes kind of in the kinetic chain that's a reflection of that limited range of motion? Like for a yoga teacher, they're going to say, oh, that person's out of alignment. It might yeah. be they're trying to go this way and their elbows are winging out and their shoulders are really kind of elevated. Yeah. Potentially a sign that at the distal end, they've got a limited range of motion and they're just trying to muscle through. Is that the body kind of saying, I don't have the range of motion you need here. So I'm trying to do other things to kind of cheat and get around it. Yeah. That, you see that all the time. You're, you're absolutely right. It's the kinetic chain. And, um, being not in the correct position distally, like towards the fingers of the wrist, can no question have an upstream effect or, or vice versa. You know, somebody has shoulder trouble, shoulder mobility, 
they can't get the shoulder in the right you know alignment. They're externally rotated, internally rotated. So then the elbow does this, and then the wrist does that. So there's always a, a compounding downstream effect. Um, yeah, and you know, part of the reason why I think of it is because, especially in a posture like a back bend, that yeah, be a pose that people really want to do. They kind of attach a lot of meaning to it. Um, over the years, I've had students for a variety of reasons, struggle with it. And when they are able to do it, um, and it could have nothing to do with their wrist. It could be hip flexor tightness. It could be just overall deconditioned, whatever it is. Um, but it makes me wonder, again, you know, there are general poses we can suggest to people to increase range of motion in hips and shoulders. But what could we really do if someone we suspect has limited range of motion in extension? Is there are there exercises that typically you could have someone do to increase yeah. range of motion in that way? Yeah, it's interesting. I was just talking to a patient today about, um, so this is not somebody who's like at baseline, not flexible, but somebody who does yoga, broke their wrist and is having trouble getting to full extension. Yeah. And she's still healing the fracture and going through rehab. But one, one of the things I love doing is just using your body weight. You know, I, I there, one of the things for, for me, just as a side note, I, I discovered yin yoga during COVID and I'm totally obsessed. So using my body weight, prolonged, you know, holding poses yeah. and, and like opening things up. So I've sort of applied that to the wrist. For instance, if somebody can't fully extend, then I'll have them go do a wall plank, right? I'll have them find the spot on the wall, however high the shoulder needs to be, get the hand flat on the wall, and then kick the feet out and just use your body weight. And every day, come down. And then as you come down, it's going to be you know, closer to 90. Once you get to 90, then add more weight. In other words, get onto a table. Maybe your body's like this, but you still have, you know, more weight and then eventually get down to the floor and, and it'll just open up. And at least in that case, we know what the end point should be because they have a normal wrist on the other side. Yeah. But if somebody has got like baseline super tightness, you got the guy who's like, you know, construction worker, he's 60 right. years old. He's like trying to work on mobility. You see guys like that. That's a much harder, uh, not to crack just cause they're just, so tight everywhere yeah um, but but generally i mean you know it is most people even though they can't they should be able to get to 90 degrees of extension yeah yeah and it's, it's funny that exercise you just described is actually uh, a way to teach people handstand at the wall you kind of oh yeah yeah upside down l going it this way yeah 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 right so you kind of you go up to the wall and you measure how far away you are by placing your foot against the wall with your legs yeah, yeah. degrees and that's now where you turn around and you put your hands down that's yeah, kind of yeah. a typical way to teach people the idea of being upside down but you're pressing your feet against the wall so you're perpendicular to the wall yeah that's but it's awesome. interesting that you say that because as you say, if they walk their hands out, they're not at 90 degrees full wrist extension, but you can, you're saying, use that as a gauge to kind of walk back. It's kind of like yeah. the difference between plank and down dog. Yeah, 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 exactly. Which, you know, which we typically do see in practice um, and, you know, kind of somewhat related to that. I know sometimes teachers from whatever their background is, will offer someone different props. And um, it's never been quite clear to me what the rationale is from an anatomical standpoint. Let's say someone were to say, um, downward dog really bothers my wrists. Now again, down mm. dog, they're not in full extension because their hands are out beyond their shoulders. And yeah. occasionally a teacher might suggest, place your hands on blocks or place your hands on, yoga studios sometimes have these wedges that yeah right 
So what's behind that in terms of the, is there something kind of in that that could ease someone's discomfort related to the pressure on the wrist or the angle of the wrist? Are we just kind of saying, try it and see, and who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think there's some of that. Um, sometimes people are very articulate about exactly what's holding them back, right? But most people are not quite able to very clearly articulate. So they may, they may conflate weakness, like lack of upper body strength to like, it hurts when I do this. Like I, I just can't hold the pose, right? Or let's say something like that. Or uh, maybe it's lack of mobility and they're saying like it hurts at that you know, extreme emotion. So I think part of it is just diagnosing exactly what the problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say most people that I see who have wrist trouble um, are, are that it's that ulnar side of wrist pain. So they have pain with, with loaded extension and it aggravates a little bit. There's a soft tissue problems in the side of the wrist that are causing a little bit of pain. So they get down a plank or down dog or, or you know, whatever position where the hands flat on the ground and that really does strain that ligament yeah in which case there, there isn't a prop that's going to fix that um you know what, what i call the neutral grip is going to actually offload that tremendously so like doing it on the fist is so much easier on the wrist than doing this and i can get into the nitty-gritty about the anatomy but uh it's very intuitive right people just find that to be more yeah. comfortable but as far as props i mean there may be certain props that put the wrist or the shoulder or the elbow in a different angle. So it just gives you a different mechanical feel or, or different way of loading on weight on the, on the hand or the wrist that may make it quote, feel better. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's a magic like solution. Okay. I think you gotta be like, you kind of drill down and figure out what it is that's holding the, the practitioner back from like what, what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, when you mentioned something about kind of, I can't remember how you worded it a couple seconds ago, but it, it thought triggered a thought in my mind in terms of many times for a lot of the postures that are weight bearing on the arms, people approach those poses as primarily led by the upper body musculature and they kind of yeah. out their core and their legs. And <clears throat> even in a pose like down dog, sometimes it can be helpful to say to somebody, squeeze a block between your thighs to get abduction yeah. rotation triggered so that it kind of takes some of the load off yeah. that position and helps them recruit down the chain to save the front end. But if no one suggests it, they might not even ever think because they're kind of thinking, you know, down dog, up dog, high to low push up, plank, those are all the engine is in the front. It's like, yo, yeah, the rest of the car, like right. that sort of makes sense from a kind of functional anatomy, biomechanical standpoint. Yeah. You know, even from my own personal experience, I mean, I, I used to lift a lot of weights so and, you know, it's all about like upper body strength for guys, you know, getting bench and lap pull downs and biceps. So that I started doing yoga just like casually in med school. And I remember thinking like, Oh, this is those poses on my hands are easy. Cause I'm thinking, Oh, this is the top of a push up, or I'm using my upper body. Yeah. But now that I'm older and weaker, um, I'm actually like, understanding the mechanics better of, of yeah. why these poses are important a lot of core a lot of like mobility at the shoulder you know yeah. you're actually optimizing you're not relying on uh, pec and tricep strength per se because you're you know you're loading you're using your joints and your bones you know for yes. to hold these poses right so um so I, I feel like yeah a lot as with many things um whether it's golf or skiing or in yoga um a lot of it is form dependent like understanding what the proper form is um 
And then if you don't know the form, you sort of come up with your own way of just getting to that pose that you, that you think you're supposed to do, but it's like totally off. Like, you know, I'm, a, a top of a push-up is not a plank, you know, the two totally different things. But as a guy who's like getting jacked in the gym, you're like, oh, this is an easy pose, right? But right. that's not what it's about. Yeah. Right. And, and doing high-level push-up in yoga is not doing a push-up. You know, the yeah, ulnar right. different in terms of, yeah. Um, so you mentioned this ulnar uh, side of the hand pain. Are there any other things that you see from people who are yoga practitioners injury-wise, or is that the primary one? Uh, so that's the primary one. The other one I'll commonly see is, is somebody um, <clears throat> who comes in and says, you know, I'm, I'm young, I'm healthy, never had an injury. I can't quite get down to a plank or a down dog because I can't fully extend. And then it turns out they have a ganglion cyst. So that, that's a super common thing. I don't know if you've had people you've, you've worked with, but um, ganglions are generically speaking, little fluid filled sacs. Fluid is, is, is a synovial fluid that lines the joints, any joint in the body that acts like mortar oil. And in the wrist, most commonly in this spot right here, you can actually blow a leak. So a little leak forms and then you form this little, maybe like a chickpea size uh, pocket of fluid, nothing dangerous, nothing, it's not a harbinger of any injury or arthritis or any other problem, but there are, I've definitely had some folks that come in and they say, you know, either I can't get there or it hurts when I get there and I can't do yoga. Got um, it. And that, that's a little bit, it's kind of an annoying problem to treat as a surgeon because like, I don't want to just jump straight to surgery and take this thing out just so that you can do a down dog. So I usually tell people if that's diagnosis and there's nothing else mechanically wrong with the wrist, I, I'll have to tell them to kind of suck it up and just get it there. And then it's okay if it hurts because um, yeah. you're not doing, you know, introducing any harm to the wrist by doing that. Um, that that's probably the second most problem that, I, that people come in and see me for. Okay. And, and it's usually like just develops over time like who knows why. random same thing yeah who knows why it's usually not related to an injury um i see it in some gymnasts but i don't think you have to be doing like handsprings and loading the wrist repetitively yeah. to get to get things like that yeah uh, but, interesting um is there anything i mean i i can think of one scenario where someone came to my class and beforehand they said that they had some kind of fracture that was recently healed and they weren't cleared by their doctor to practice yoga. And that was kind of a huge red flag for me, but they were willing mm. to try it. <laughs> they were willing to try it. I was like, well, I don't know if I, <coughs> want to try it. you know, um, there's kind of a shared liability when someone comes to, to practice yoga in a public studio. Um, but I guess one question I would, I would ask you is, you know, for yoga teachers out there listening, is there anything where you would say, if someone presented before class and said, hey, I have X, that it should really give the yoga teacher pause with respect to, you know, like, obviously, we can't say you are not allowed in my class, it's up to the person if they want to. Yeah. But I think about things like RSD, you know, RSD or nerve issues, or someone's talking about any kind of, I have pain and tingling, but I really think I can work through, you know, anything that if you can kind of imagine yourself as a yoga teacher, right. You yeah. classes and all that, that you would be like, mm, I don't think this is a good idea. Yeah. I guess, you know, mo first of all, nerve problems. I feel like most people can self-regulate, you know, as far as how, how far they can perceive that they should push. Uh, but with regards to like a, uh, a wrist condition, there really isn't much where you, it's like, whoa, you should definitely not lean into this. Okay. You know, obviously barring some known injury. 
Right. And even even in injured patients, I, I'm I like to get people moving. I think mobility is important uh, in in recovering from injuries. So, um, for instance, if somebody has a broken wrist, you know this the radius is the most commonly broken uh, bone in the upper extremity for obvious reasons. You fall and then radius fractures, super common in the winter. Um, you know, at week six, I'll tell them like you can you can start doing some plank and some like you know partial weight bearing exercises because I I like the benefits of the mobility. And those poses are super low impact. So there's yeah. little risk of, of dislodging bones that are more or less 80, 90% heal at that point. Um, but yeah, I, I can't think of any like major red flags where it's like, well, you have this thing, you should probably not do class today. I, 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 yeah. Nothing really jumps to my mind. Okay, cool. Um, so when you were just talking about, you know, kind of the, the post-op treatment plan and you were talking about mobility being an important part of that, you know, it got me thinking about, um, a recent podcast I was listening to, or something on something on video YouTube ish, um, with a personal trainer, exercise science person, actually he's got his doctorate in PT. So I take that back. And he was Mm. interviewing someone about the, the kind of traditional rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation methodology after injury as kind of being, um, looked at differently these days and not only increase mobility, but maybe not as much icing due to kind of the idea that it sort of freezes up all those interstitial spaces yeah. and fascia and all that. So I was just wondering in terms of the wrist and someone, this is just a general question, um, someone who has an injury, do you have, ha, have you seen a change in kind of how ice is used in post-operative care in regards to an acknowledgement that maybe we shouldn't be, you know, you know, I think of in high school or in college, you had an injury, you iced it, sports injury, ice it, ice it, ice it. And it seems like I'm hearing more and more that we really don't want to be icing so much. We want to keep people moving. We want to get them moving as soon as possible. Yeah. Is that also, do you see that kind of trending happening in terms of post-operative care in terms of wrist injuries? Yeah, I think the general trend in hand surgery, so, you know, again, we have, this is an amazing machine, and the more you lock this thing up, when you're recovering from an injury or surgery, the more downstream rehab you're looking at doing just because things get super stiff. The general trends in, in hand surgery are, like you said, more mobility, getting people out of the cast sooner, getting them moving them sooner, you know, as long as you don't jeopardize the outcome. Um, I think in, in our practice, we, I, we work very closely with hand therapists. I basically see patients side by side with hand therapists who are there, you know, essentially walking the patients through the recovery process. And um, they rely equally on heat and on ice. And I would say the general theme uh, is heat for sure helps mobility. And then ice helps at the end to kind of like cool the tissues down and then mitigate the inflammatory flare um, that can happen after vigorous activity. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a lot of it's just based on what patients can do or what they can tolerate, but yeah, we definitely see people are moving better so long as, uh, you know, with, with heat. In fact, like, let's say somebody comes in with a wrist fracture and they're like a little bit stiff. They'll spend the first like, um, 10 minutes with their hands sitting in a hydroculator and getting tissues nice and warm. And then the therapist will start banging on the tissues and st- trying to stretch things out. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have an old memory of 
a wax where you would dip your hand. Yeah, yeah, the paraffin uh, wax baths for sure. Yeah, I don't know why I have that memory. Maybe from when I did a short stint in my PT rotation when I was thinking I was going to be a physical therapist at BU, I somehow feel like I was at like Faulkner or something and we were sticking our hand in like paraffin wax and it yeah, was yeah, yeah. amazing. But that must have been similar to heat. You just kind of are enveloping yeah. your hand in the warm. Um, so, you know, obviously we age, our joints start to have issues, hands, I'm sure, are not kind of out of the realm of, of, you know, again, we oftentimes think of joint health in terms of the big joints of the body. But can you speak a little bit, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, speak a little bit to overall joint health, if people are listening, and they're feeling like, man, my wrists are, you know, I'm just, I don't have anything in particular, but overall, I just feel like I don't have good wrist mobility and it's really just a sign of aging. Are there things that people can do? Are we taking supplements or what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's a question I get often in the office. Um, you know, we're not, we're outlasting our parts, right? One of the marvels of medicine is that we're the average life expectancy is almost 80. Yeah, well, Rachel um, some, David Sinclair's stuff comes to fruition. Yeah. We're living to 160 if we yeah. can or Sirtuin or whatever it is, right? Yeah, it's amazing. But the problem is we have parts that just wear out, you know, and it's not like we can go to spare parts bin and, and switch it out unless it's a hip or a knee. Um, you know, wear and tear arthritis or osteoarthritis, as we call it, 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 there's no cure yet. You know, there's a lot of snake oil that's out there both that you can buy at stores. Um, much of which is not scientifically proven. There's a lot of stuff even being hawked by professionals in healthcare, which again, a lot of which does not have any proven benefit. Do you um, think collagen falls into that bucket? Kinda, yeah. I mean, if you like, like eating collagen, like yeah, like stuff. it's such a thing. Bone broth, collagen, and, and yeah. I want, but I mean, the way I think of that is, you know, most of what we eat in in, in um meat if you're a meat eater is collagen right and, and that's broken down and then your body recreates what it needs based on those building blocks so it's not like if you eat joint cartilage collagen that it's going to magically reline your joints right so there's this weird you know there's there's so much stuff that's out there and, and what i tell my patients is that you know americans have the most expensive urine in the country in the world we buy all these, a lot of these supplements and we just end up not needing them. Our body's like, oh, this, we don't need this. We have too much of this, so it's, it's gone anyways. Now, the, the placebo effect is also real. I'll have patients come in and say, I took X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. And we know that 20% of the time, the sugar pill works too. So um, I, I try not to minimize that. And if you're getting relief from whatever, then I, I just tell people, keep going. And um, trial and error is great. So don't, you know, don't be so close-minded. But I'm also trained to think scientifically and you know there's certain things that will work and some things that won't right. um and so bottom line is there isn't a, a magic pill that like is being secretly uh, sequestered and we're, we're like not telling people about um, my general rule of thumb is use it or lose it you know keep moving keep using right. your hands most of the loss of, uh, of joint space is determined by genetics uh, not most maybe a lot like in other words there's some 80 year olds who are like you look at them like you, you move like you're 50 right? and then you meet 60 year olds who didn't work in construction who are like, whoa, dude, what is going on here? Right. You're, you're right. not, you know, you're not age appropriate. So I think there's definitely a big genetic component, but my general you know, t uh, lesson I tell people is 
especially regarding the hands and the wrists. Just move it. Just keep doing the things you, you, you enjoy. Don't let this stiffness or soreness hold you back. And then add the other stuff to help you enjoy those things, whether it's Advil or Voltaren gel, whatever it may be, heat, cold. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, we, you know, surgery is an option for certain problems, but we always try to avoid surgery um, until it's the last resort. But um, yeah, it, it's a tough problem because joint health is, is a major, major issue. It's a multi-billion dollar industry within healthcare. Yeah, and, and I think what you must just, think when you go into Whole Foods or any of these stores and you go down that aisle where all yeah. the are and everything, like it must be interesting to be you standing there, like looking at all this stuff with, you know, like you say, there's the placebo effect. And yeah, 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 yeah. There's, you know, no time. There's no proven, not a lot of. Evidence. Yeah, and then and then the internet's great, but for a lot of things where there is no clear answer usually the signal to noise ratio is awful online, you know? So if you Google like uh, arthritis cream or arthritis pill or supplement, it's like, first of all, it's like a page of ads where most, usually that stuff's not proven at all. And then you go down to the actual search results and you're kind of like, eh, this doesn't really help me. Right. So if you can't easily find an answer, it's probably because there is no answer. Right. It's the way I look at it. Right. No, that's, that's, that's great. Especially with regard to the collagen thing. Cause that, is really, I think, huge right now. Even yeah. vegan collagen, which I don't need a lot of meat, so I actually purchased about a month ago in Whole Foods a whole thing, yeah, yeah, vegan based, which is plant based, not collagen, but supposedly nutrients that yeah, yeah, bone and joint health. You know, again, <laughs> who knows? I mean, college, think of college, collagen is a basic building block for anything structural in the body, bones, muscles, right. tendons. Uh, you know. So that's going to be a big part of an animal eater's diet. And, and so, you know, we are, depending on how you look at evolved or created to um, need those building blocks to build our bodies. And so you just, you got to find ways to get it. So right. that, that I agree with, I and mean, you got to find ways to, to, to make sure that you get enough. But as far as like taking that, whatever supplement to suddenly restore cartilage that's been worn out, there's nothing, nothing proven that to do that. Got it. Got it. Good to know. We could actually save some money there, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm going to so, probably get some hate mail from people, you know. Who are yeah. Well, and, and like you say, <laughs> there is placebo effect. I mean, even if you just look at the tea section, there's tea for this and tea for yeah, that, yeah, yeah. you know, and you know, if you're having a cup of tea, I guess maybe to a certain extent, if that's part of it, that's supposed yeah, to be. I'm fully supportive. Yeah. If so it I'm, makes it feel better, go get it. Yeah. 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 And it's also, I love that you said that during COVID you got into yin yoga and that's such a cool, uh, a cool thing that that was kind of the catalyst to doing that. So how are you? Yeah. I think it's great. I, so I, I, I don't know if you know, but I got this little fitness tracker and it, you know, it helps track recovery scores. So when I was like really not working for, you know, last spring and into early summer, I basically was like gamifying my own physiology to figure out how to like maximize this and that. Nice. And one thing I, yeah. And one thing that consistently made my recovery score better and my sleep, sleep numbers better was doing yoga right before I go to bed. It was amazing. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what it was, but yeah. um, so what, at least once or twice a week, I'll do a quick like 20, 25 minute session. Um, yeah. And then, and then I'll just knock out and it's like the best, best yeah. feeling. Yeah. So when COVID was really, really rampant here in Massachusetts, you were not operating as much because some of your stuff was elective. 
Yeah, I mean, but even the traumas that we were taking call for, like nobody's out doing stuff. So it right. was like crickets in the emergency room. People were f- afraid to go out. Oh, and so nobody, right. as a result, nobody was getting hurt. Right, exactly. Yes, got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, unless it was like, God forbid, somebody got into a car accident. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, yeah. Down, nothing was happening. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I, I, you know, I wanted to kind of wrap up with kind of the overall thoughts that you have on wellness and health, but I feel like we kind of just covered that in that last section, which is great because again, you know, I think when we think about overall joint health, sometimes people focus on the big joints, but I love that we're here talking about kind of the fine motor movement. I love the marionette metaphor. I think that's a great um, for the risk that really will give people something to think about uh, as they dive into it kind of on their own deeper. So thank you so much for sharing that, that, that was, yeah, this is great. I had a blast. Yeah. And they're listening, especially, you know, if they're in Massachusetts, if they want to contact you, find you, how do they do that? How are, um, I guess, you know, if you want, I can share my email address with you and you can maybe plug it, um, or put it up on your, uh, podcast. Happy to share it. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll put that in there and I can just tell listeners, go to the show notes of the, yeah. Cause sometimes they're definitely, I'm in Boston. A lot of my listeners are in Boston, although honestly there are listeners all over the world that listen to this, but if they are in Boston and they're having some kind of wrist issue, that might be something that they want to follow up on. Yeah. Happy to help. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. There you are, get, you know, out of the OR, got to get on the yoga podcast. Yeah, that's well, right. I got things to do. Everybody get out of the way. So I really, really, really appreciate it. And I, you know, I will thank Ben when he comes back from playing golf. Yes. <laughs> that, uh, that he connected us. And I really appreciate this little sidebar, you know, and how we met that you're willing to do this. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's great. It was a real privilege and a joy. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Karen. Yes. Yes. Thank you again. And I will send you the link. This will go live on um, Monday or Tuesday and iTunes is the best way. Uh, oh, it's cool. Posted on a different uh, podcast uh, platform, but iTunes is typically how people listen to it. So I'll send you the yeah. link those up on Tuesday. Oh, super fun. I look forward to it. All right. Well, have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Enjoy. Hopefully I'll right. you soon. Yes. Okay. All right. Take care. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and I just want to remind you, if you would like to get on the wait list for my two premier programs, the Blueprint Learning Program and my mentorship program, all you need to do is visit my website, barebonesyoga.com, and the links to get on the wait list for both of these programs are right on the homepage. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.